What up? You're listening to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. We gon' make it all the way. We don't care what they all will say. Don't listen to the hate, no. Listen to my fate, yo. Destined to be great, yo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are glad to have you listening in with us. I am Steve Vandegraaff, and I am joined this afternoon by the Lufkin legend, Dr. Derek Williams. We're glad you guys are joining us this week. Derek, how are you doing? Doing good. Man, that's a good nickname, the Lufkin legend. I like it. <laughs> Got a nice roll to it. Yeah, you are. You are. If they don't know you around there, they will. <laughs> yeah. So how have you been? What's the funnest thing you did this week? Oh, good question. It was my daughter Claire's birthday this week, so we did a couple things around her birthday. Probably my favorite thing ended up being the Lufkin High School put on a play. It was Shrek, so we took the family to see it, and we all had a blast. The kids had a good time. What about you? Can you beat that? Nice. I don't know. Shrek's pretty tough. We did go to the circus. There was like this mini circus that came into town, and we all went, and it was like my first time under like a real circus tent, you know? It was fun. It was fun. Kids liked it. I actually <laughs> was just looking at everything and like, how much does he have to pay that performer? How much did this tent cost? Those RVs in the bag. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting. He shared his, you know, entrepreneurial story about how he started from like a mini tent. And anyway, so that's kind of what we did and what I found interesting. But overall, we're doing good. So one thing that I wanted to share a little bit before we get into today's topic. I just wanted to say thanks to those that have left us reviews on iTunes. We put a lot of time and effort into making this podcast, and we always appreciate the feedback. I wanted to give a quick shout out to a couple of people that have left reviews in the last week. So one of them is Peterson, 9009. He said, the lifestyle practice has quality content to boost your practice. From personal experience, I believe these guys actually want their listeners and clients to succeed. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. The next one is, uh, I might butcher the name, but Dr. Deshpande. (laughs) He or she said, they are positive and motivational. Most people in our field are constantly talking about how the golden age is over and how dentistry is getting so challenging. Even though it is all of those things and more, this podcast teaches you how to be relentless. And I love that. It also provides real practical tips you can use on Monday. So thank you guys for your feedback. We would appreciate more. Maybe be reading off a few others in the future. All right, Steve, let's jump into it. Tell us what we're going to be talking about today. All right, let's do it. So in the last week, I've spoken with a couple dentists who have just closed or are preparing to close within a month or two on their new practice. So I thought, after speaking with these guys, that it would be helpful to provide maybe a few tips and ideas on the very first few months of a transition. I like it. Yeah. So I think it's really applicable to lots of people out there. If you are not transitioning or you have a practice, as always, there's probably a bunch of pearls to glean along the way. But so if you are going to be or will be hopefully someday transitioning into a practice, we're going to talk about the first couple months and just provide a couple quick little tips. Okay. So first of all, let's remember that when we acquire practice, much of the value of the practice that you're buying is patient goodwill, which basically you could say that is your patient's 
loyalty to you and your staff. This is the main difference from an acquisition versus a startup, right? We want cash flow and something existing, goodwill that's already there to help us rather than build from the ground up. We want to transition that goodwill and all the cash flow that comes with it as effectively as possible from the selling doctor to you. So to that end, we want to avoid significant changes or rocking the boat that could result in too much change for patients beyond the significant adjustment that they are already experiencing in having a brand new doctor. We want the selling doctor to be our ally in this effort. He needs to speak you up to the staff and the patients at transition time. And he wants to give you a glowing review. Basically, he's going to be your cheerleader and he wants to be your number one fan and help the patients understand that he's got your back. Or she, Steve, you know, come on. Not all dentists are guys, okay? Sorry, sorry. Yes, thank you. This is true. This is true. So, you know, I thought this was kind of obvious, but I read on some of the threads a couple weeks ago. I mean, there were a lot of dentists that were saying, don't send a letter out to new patients, informing them of a transition because it gives them an excuse to look for a new dentist. And if you did that and it worked great, but I personally think that this free Facebook advice is kind of dumb. A warm letter from the selling doctor endorsing you, explaining why he or she specifically chose you to take care of their family is a very important step and should be done early. When I brought my practice, the selling doctor was a little bit weird and he refused to write a letter to all those patients. So he was really particular about it. So whatever. I went ahead and wrote one myself to all patients in the entire computer system, introducing myself as their new dentist. And we had excellent retention of existing patients. And we actually got a ton of old patients back that weren't active. Was it because there was a picture in there, Steve? Yes, that's the number one reason. Okay, okay, okay. That makes more sense now. (laughs) Yeah. I'm happy to let you use my picture in your welcome letter. (laughs) But you get the idea, right? We had tons of patients that came in and like even a year or two later, they would come and be like, oh, you sent me this letter. And, you know, it's an easy thing. Make sure it's done well and do it early. Yeah, I agree. My seller was nice enough to write a very nice letter and it was really well done. So yeah, I definitely agree. So really kind of what we're talking about here is kind of first impressions. And with this letter, that is most likely going to be all of those patients' very first impression. So it needs to be well done. But even more so, your first interactions with the patient are very important and they need to be intentional. So you need to explain to the staff how important this experience is. Talk to them about how you would like the staff to build you up and for the front desk when she answers the phone and meets people up front to say, you know, as they're checking in, oh, wow, you're really going to love the new doctor. They're really good. And it's really been awesome. We thought this was going to be tough, but it's actually going so well. And honestly, if they have to fake it, you know, likely in the beginning, they're going to have to fake it a little bit. Yeah. And that's okay. And then it's going to kind of transition to the back with the hygienist and the assistant. You want them to introduce you as you enter. And they should also say the patient's name so that, you know, you can say it right away. You can use it throughout the conversation. Remember that your first impression is crucial. It's a crucial moment for the patient. Their perception of you whether it's accurate or inaccurate for those first few minutes, it's going to be hard to change that. So a few things, you want to look sharp, obviously, you want to come across confident, but down to earth. 
interested in them, but not overbearing. Just try to be genuine. One thing that I always try and do with new patients is to act like when I walk in the room, I have all the time in the world. And my only priority is just to get to know them and to enjoy my time with them. Even if I'm feeling stretched for time, I'm thinking in the back of my head, I got to get back in there, finish up that root canal and get the next patient in. But even with that in the back of my mind, when I walk in, I'm going to shake their hand, look them in the eye, sit down and start asking questions about them and their life, what they like to do when they're not sitting in the dental chair. Nice. You know, one solution to help with that is just not to do root canals. (laughs) Okay. I guess that's one way to look at it. (laughs) Uh, I know that's like your bread and butter, but yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it goes without saying, but you're only going to get that opportunity once. And I think it's okay to ask your hygienist or staff, you know, after maybe first day or two, be like, how do you think this is going? Should I change, you know, kind of what we're doing? What do you think would be best to gel with patients? You can even write down on a little three by five card, you know, and a little introduction or explanation of why you're taking the practice over from Dr. So-and-so. All these things just to be intentional and ready for that first interaction. Yeah, I agree. And even just to review each situation, you know, when you walk out of the room, be asking yourself, what could I have done better? How well did that go? And lean on your staff. I think that's smart. I think that was a good idea. Okay, let's transition into the next point. What we want to talk about is having a clear transfer of ownership. There's definitely different preferences about the if and how long the selling doctor should stay on. Sometimes the seller is easygoing and they're willing to help or they're willing to leave. Sometimes the seller can't go completely or, you know, they might feel bored in retirement and they want to stay on. Similarly, buyers are going to have different preferences as well. So whatever you decide on, all of these different ways work. So we're going to kind of talk around like some of the pros and cons. They all work. The most important thing is that the seller and the buyer both feel good about it. And it's understood upfront by both parties what's going to happen moving forward and that it's included in the contract. You don't want to have you know this vague idea about how long he or she is going to be there or you know what their role is going to be in the office. Try and have a timeline and stick to it or even have a timeline, but have it be flexible that you know you could say, seller is available for the first six months, but may leave earlier, you know, so that it kind of leaves a little bit of wiggle room there. Right. Yeah. Whatever it is, you got to be in agreement and have a plan about it. Even if the plan is you need to review it at three months or one month or whatever. What we don't want is you showing up to work, getting to work, and all of a sudden selling doctor kind of pokes his head in and, well, I'm going to be here for the afternoon or, you know, you want to have a clear, concise plan. I don't know how selling doctors do that. I think like the day I'm done, like doing dentistry will be the last thing on my mind, but that's what you hear. It happens. So I think that's important to communicate up front about. You know, Derek, you and I are kind of biased, but I think we are really fans of short transitions. Yeah. As in really short. (laughs) I mean, my doc left after that first morning and didn't yours do the same? Yeah. Yeah, he did. See, he went on vacation. That's what you should do if you're retiring. But at first, I think I speak for both of us, it kind of felt overwhelming, but we quickly learned the benefit. And that is as long as the senior doc is in the office, 
the patients and the staff are largely going to see him or her as the real boss. This means team members will give more weight to his instructions than yours. You know, he or she's been the doctor for 20 years. You're just the new guy. Patients, they're going to want to see what the old doc has to say about this new treatment that you're suggesting. They'll probably feel, well, he's never said anything about any of this and he's just next door. I, I let's see what he has to say. Yeah. But if the doc's gone, you are now the boss. Staff will learn how to follow your new vision and patients don't get to second guess your opinion or try to be seen by the older guy. I spoke with somebody recently who he wanted to keep the seller on for a year or two so that the seller doc could keep seeing all of his existing patients and the new doc would just see all the new patients. And I gently explained that I think that's kind of the opposite of what you want. You're buying this practice. These patients are your patients now. You want them to understand that. Yeah. You know, I'd second everything that you said. This is one of those issues that really we tend to worry about, but 99% of the time, it really doesn't end up being an issue. I'll say this. I have talked to docs that regretted keeping on the seller for too long, but I've never talked to anyone that wished that they would have kept the seller around longer. I have heard some stories of that, so I'm sure that there are those experiences out there. I just haven't talked to anyone personally that feels that way. Ultimately, what it comes down to, if you're planning ahead and you have a solid transition strategy in place, it shouldn't be an issue. Right. So next point is introducing changes. When we're analyzing practices, we should be doing this, but we like to think of all the things we can go in and change and add or adjust to grow the practice. This is good and a thorough plan of how we're going to implement new things and grow our practice should be a big part of our due diligence when we're evaluating practices. But for the first initial while, it is important for the staff to actually not change too much on them. You know, for the team members, having you in place of the old doc who potentially was there for decades before you came around is in of itself a huge change. Everything they're used to, how you work, how you speak to patients, the pace of the doctor, all of this is going to be very, very different and it's going to be very new for them. So introducing things gradually can help avoid rocking the boat. So what should you introduce first? Well, I was actually reading a Dental Town magazine just a month or two ago and I came across an article by a very well-respected author who just happened to write on this very topic. Why, thank you, Steve. (laughs) Take it away. (laughs) Yeah, if you're interested, just Google. The title of it is Crush Your First Year in Ownership. You'll be able to pull that up. But honestly, we could probably do an entire episode about this single topic of how to introduce change in an acquisition. But the idea here is that you want to implement first the things that will have a strong impact on the ability of the practice to increase production or collections, and will require less change from the staff as far as, you know, being more easy to implement. So I have a couple examples that I was thinking of talking about. I just thought of one more when we were talking about the last issue as far as having the seller stay on. So one thing that I see a lot is consultants and dentists talking to new dentists when they buy practice and saying, don't go in there and recommend that they need crowns or that they need dental work done. If you think that they need work, just wait a year or two and just get to know the patients and 
You need to build that relationship first. And I think that's the biggest bunch of bull. If a patient needs work, they need work. It shouldn't be based on how good of friends we are with the patient. So I really bugs me when I hear this said. You can be totally honest and upfront with patients telling them the work that they need to have done while also being friendly and respectful. So maybe we have a separate podcast about that at some point. And that is an area that can be tough if the seller stays on because it's very typical for a seller to be much more conservative and patching things and for a new doc to be a little bit more aggressive. So this can be tough at times, like you talked about. And I'll add to that. I totally agree. Don't wait a year to tell them something. Don't sweep anything under the rug. But when you present it, you can be cognizant of not trying to surprise them, something that they may not have been expecting and let them know as soon as you're ready on your time, I think this would be great to fix. And in my experience, patients are very open to that. Maybe because they're just like, you know, they don't trust dentists in general and they're suspicious of what the previous dentist care was. But in my experience, most of them are really open to being like, oh, wow, yeah, I never even knew or he didn't tell me. And so, and we've talked a lot about that before, but you'd be surprised how open they are to that. And so I totally agree. Don't try to wait or build a relationship for a year before you tell them what they need. Yeah, well said. So that's one thing that you'll want to put in place quickly because that is going to change the amount of production that you're able to do. And it doesn't really change anything as far as staff, you know, what they have to do. They're still going to have to do their jobs as normal. So, okay. So I want to compare two examples here of that are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. So remember, with every change that we're looking at, we're looking at how great is the potential of this change going to increase collections or production? And how easy is it going to be for the staff to implement this? So two examples. First, we'll just look at adding intraoral cameras. And the second example, we'll look at changing practice management software. These are both relatively common things. If a practice currently doesn't use intraoral cameras, this is a a really good one to look at implementing. Let's talk about these two questions. So when we're looking at that, how much could implementing intraoral cameras increase production? And how difficult would it be for staff to implement it? Well, generally, if a new doc can start using intraoral cameras in the practice that hasn't been using them, they will see a big increase in accepted treatment, thus raising production. So it has a great ability there. And as far as the question, how difficult will it be for staff to implement? Usually, I just recommend that the new doc use the cameras for a month or so on their own. So really, it requires no extra work for the staff. After a while, you know, the staff will kind of get a feel for what types of things that you want pictures of. And then you can train everyone to be doing it when it works out better. So again, implementing this would give a pretty good opportunity for increasing production and it wouldn't be too difficult for staff. On the other hand, when we look at changing practice management software, it's going to be a little bit different. For the most part, switching to a new software is not likely going to make much of a difference in production or collections. I've had a few docs that I've worked with that have had a bad software system, and it's given a lot of challenges in tracking and evaluating things. But the majority of the time, it's not anything real significant as far as is it going to make a difference with production and collections? But on the other hand, this is also going to be something that could be relatively difficult for staff to implement. So 
it's kind of the opposite of the intraoral cameras. So this is probably something that we are going to put on the back burner at least for, you know, a couple months to get through the difficult phase. Mm-hmm. So you can go through these same steps with anything new that you're thinking of implementing, whether it's going digital in the office or putting a new collections system in place, doing a remodel, whatever. You want to weigh the immediate effect on increasing production and collections and balance that with how much this will require of the staff. Usually after several weeks or months, the staff knows that they know you well, they know you better at that point, and they're buying into you because they're seeing the changes that you've made and the difference that they're making. And they'll be ready for some of those larger changes. Honestly, this is probably one of the greatest benefits that I felt from coaching when I was new in ownership. I felt so overwhelmed because I just felt like there was so many changes that needed to be made and I didn't really know where to focus my energy. So having a coach being able to help with evaluating these changes and helping me to see, okay, let's prioritize this and put the rest of these things on the back burner. That was really instrumental for me in making headway and making progress in the beginning. Yeah. I remember you talking about that, how just deciding where to put your dollars as far as changes, whether it was marketing or upgrading or whatever it was, that was really helpful. I remember you saying that. So yeah, I like that a lot. I think a a really productive and just practical thing to do is if you're in this early phase, if you're closing soon, just pick one thing each week, starting out, kind of do this little analysis and then just add or change one thing per week. You'll meet with your staff weekly and you'll kind of introduce new things. You don't need to do everything all at once. There's going to be a billion things and you're going to find a lot of problems that you didn't expect and you'll need to change those too. But just kind of take it one step at a time. And that kind of transitions us into the last point. This isn't so much as a tip as it is just a word of encouragement. (laughs) You know, the first period after becoming a practice owner will be very stressful in the least, but most likely you will feel completely overwhelmed. There may be someone out there listening that's supermanned, and if so, that's great. But don't feel like you're unique if the amount of things on your plate seems like it's just too much to handle. Between leading staff, being completely on your own for the first time clinically, trying to please patients, worrying about the debt load that you know you probably just doubled or tripled your debt, wondering if this huge risk is really going to be worth it, all those things can be extremely stressful. So remember, you can do it. Take it a day at a time, but this is going to be worth it. You don't have to do everything all at once. It's interesting you bring this up because I've actually been thinking a lot about this the last few weeks as I've had different clients that have really kind of gone through some struggles and some low points. And, you know, I've been there too. So actually the podcast that I'm going to record next week is just all about facing adversity and challenges and how do we push through it? A lot of times on TLP, we're so positive and, you know, just get in there and get after it, which that's the right attitude. But there's times where you got to take a step back. Yeah. I think I speak for both of us when I say that, you know, we both felt inadequate to the task. You and I have both shared experiences of not having an appetite, not eating, not being able to sleep at night because of the stress. They're tough times a couple points real quick, I think, try to tie everything back into your bigger picture. What is your why? Where are you going with all of this? 
if you don't have the answers to these questions, you need to backtrack a little bit and get this figured out. So we're biased, but having a coach that has done exactly what you're looking to do can be so valuable at this time. I really don't think there's any other time in your career that you get a better ROI than your first year in ownership, because that's when there's going to be the most changes happening. You know, that first year, you're really setting up the foundation for your practice for the rest of your career. Don't go through this process alone. Seek help, ask questions, accept the fact that you're going to make mistakes. That's okay. If you care about your mistakes and you're trying to improve, then that's what matters. And get someone on your side. And just remember that the trend is on your side. I think my banker, he told me like out of any industry, I think a dental practice is like has the second lowest default rate of any business model. What was the lowest? I... I don't remember. Probably a nail salon, maybe. Yeah, there's actually a nail salon kind of close to our practice and their nails are like my profi fee. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate it so bad every time I drive by the office or by the salon, I think of that. I'll have to look that up. I'm curious now. But most dental offices make it. Okay, Most even do well. And some, if you do things right, can do extremely well. So be encouraged to know that all the people out there who have become very successful, went through the stage that you are now experiencing. You've got to come out on top because really, you have no choice once you're an owner. Your name is on the loan note. The practice is yours. Nobody is going to come and do this for you. There's no redos. You can't put your two weeks notices in. You know This is what separates owners from associates. And this struggle is why owners can do much, much better than associates. If you're the owner, the only way to make it work is to just put in the time and effort and make things happen. One thing I think is important to remember is it is not productive to harbor any feelings of buyer's remorse or second guess your decision. I remember feeling that for the first probably two or three months of my practice, like, what have I done? I wish I didn't do this. I wish it was a different practice. But that is not productive thinking. It can put you in a dark place. What's in the past is in the past. You need to focus on what you can do right now. And I've spoken with a couple of clients that, you know, that is like a big hang up in their mind. They're just like, oh, could have done this, could have done that. But, you know, at this point, the only way out is to work it out. So I would just remember to kind of have that productive mindset looking forward rather than backwards. So there's a little pep talk, okay, for everyone to finish off. If you didn't need the pep talk, Sorry, you know, there's probably someone listening to this that's like, what are they talking about? This has all been very simple and easy. Maybe Justin feels that way. But (laughs) in case you needed it, there it is. Okay. Yeah, good stuff. I was thinking of when I was talking about trying to tie this back into your bigger picture. Sometimes when I'm in a situation like that, I think, how will I look back on this 10 years from now? Is this going to be something that I remember a lot of or Is it going to be just a small thing and maybe I don't even think of it again? And it makes me think of in Justin's podcast interview in the beginning, he talked about failing boards and how he had to go home and he had to tell his wife that he failed and he had to tell his boss that he was going to be working for that he had failed and then he had to get patience like yeah such a big hassle and like interruption in your life yeah and uh, on our facebook page justin said i made my wife listen to the episode and she totally forgot that i failed boards right in my head i was thinking that is so cool i mean that's such a cool lesson because something that is so detrimental in the moment 
a few years later, it's like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. That sucks so bad. But right. man, look at us now. Yeah. So I think people looking at you think, man, Steve's got this killer practice. He's doing awesome right out of school. You know, they don't hear that story about you second guessing yourself and thinking, man, I wish I could go back. I regret this at this point. Yeah. But now where you're at is a totally different story. So pushing through that is what's important. Yeah. Good lessons. Hard won wisdom, as they say. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening. One thing that I wanted to share real quick, and we talked about this a little bit last time, but I think this relates to those of you that have purchased a practice recently, or you know, maybe you have a purchase coming up soon. We are opening our online academy and our one-on-one coaching program for the last time until next year in about a week or two, probably the beginning of December. Our final launch will be open for one week so that we can help dentists get on the path to building their practice and freeing up their life. So if you're on our email list, watch for it. And that's how we usually kind of announce it and let everybody know what's going on. If you're not on our email list, get on it if you want to know. It's easy. Just go to thelifestylepractice.com, click on learn more, and then you'll be prompted to enter your email. We never spam or, you know, send garbage. It's just actionable advice and kind of just like these podcasts. Yep. If you have any questions, as always, or if you have any questions about your acquisition or any crazy experiences that can top those, post them for the group on the Facebook page or the discussion underneath this link that we'll put out on the Facebook page. And as always, feel free, just email Derek, Steve or Justin at the lifestyle practice dot com and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.